right, so welcome everyone. This is Adresha's spring program and the fourth class of this session on the halachic process, A Brief History with Rabbi Jonathan Ziering. We value everyone's active participation. So like I said, we encourage you to turn your cameras on so uh, we can have a, a class as if we were in person and can see each other if possible. Uh, and also feel free to ask questions uh, either by unmuting yourself or by putting, uh, writing them in the chat box on Zoom or as a comment on Facebook if you're watching us live. And with that, I'll turn this to Rabbi Ziering. Okay, thank you, Evie. Um, so this week we are turning to uh, uh, the age of codes, right? We're jumping forward in, uh, in history. Last week was less uh, historical and more of a, of a survey of uh, the extent to which we still derive law from uh, from Sukim. Um, but from our last historical class two weeks ago, so we're, we're jumping forward to, um, to the 16th century, more or less. Um, and uh, we're going to discuss the, the age of codes, the when Shulchan Aruch was written um, and the... Um, and everything that that entailed. Um, okay, so let's let's uh, let's frame ourselves historically, and then try to figure out why it is that suddenly in the in the 16th century, um, the new norm for halachic writing became um, these formalized codes that we now know as the the basis, as it were, of, of halachic literature, um, and try to understand. Um, why, not only why these codes were written then, but um, the methods that were used to, to reach the conclusions and what this tells us about the development of Psaq uh, um, and then sort of point in the direction that we're going to take in the next two weeks uh, where we trace it from there to the, the modern day. So, um, so Shulchan Aruch. So what is Shulchan Aruch? Um, so, in the limited sense, it refers to the four-part code of Jewish law that was published by Rabbi Yosef Karo, and I hear, have here in the first source, um, Professor Rabbi Dr. Isidore Kursky's article, Shulchan Aruch, Enduring Code of Jewish Law, um, where he gives us a little bit of, of an outline. Right, so the text itself refers to the, the four-volume code of, uh, of Jewish law written by Rabbi Yosef Karo. Uh, the first section, Orachayim, refers to the laws that deal with holidays and, uh, and prayer and other daily or calendrically related laws. Yoridea deals with ritual law. Chosh and Mishpat deals with monetary law. And Evan Ezer deals with marital law. Uh, so at one level, when we talk about Shulchan Aruch, we talk about this four-volume code that was written by Rabbi Yosef Kara, which itself, as we, as we will see, was the summary, uh, the executive summary of his encyclopedic work, the Beit Yosef, which was a commentary on an earlier code, the Arba Turim, written by Rabbi Yaakov uh, Baal HaTurim, the son of Rabbi Asher. Um, that's one level at which we talk about the Shulchan Aruch. Um, at a second level, when we talk about the Shulchan Aruch, we don't just mean uh, the text written by Rabbi Yosef Karo, but we mean the enterprise that it began um, and all the commentaries that are written as on the side of Shulchan Aruch that really incorporate the primary mode of halachic writing, or at least one of the primary modes of halachic writing for uh, the hundreds of years uh, coming after Shulchan Aruch. So if you look at a page of Shulchan Aruch, what you'll see is in the middle, you will have uh, the text of Rabbi Yosef Karo, who, as uh, Dr. Tversky outlines here, was a Spanish emigre from Toledo. Um, he was born in 1488. He died in 1575. And Shulchan Aruch uh, was published in the, in the 1560s, 1565 and 66. Um, so Rabbi Yosef Karo, he's, a, uh, he's an emigre from Toledo. Um, he lives in Turkey for a bit, and then finally he settles in Eretz Israel, in Israel, um, in a period of, as Dr. Tversky writes here, of turbulence and instability and apocalyptic stirrings with the detailed glosses, both strictures and supplements of Rabbi Moshe Israelis, 
about 1525 to 1572, a well-to-do Polish scholar, proud of his Germanic background, who studied in Lublin and became de facto chief rabbi of Krakow in a period of relative stability and tr tranquility. Right, so we have in the center of the Shulchan Aruch, what we're talking about is really the code written by Rabbi Yosef Karo um, and the comments, the additions by the Ashkenazi Polish rabbi, uh, Rabbi Moshe Isselis, better known as the Ramah. Um, why did Shulchan Aruch happen this way? So this is a, uh, I didn't include this on the sources, but the history basically goes that uh, in the mid 16th century, both Rabbi Yosef Karo writing in Israel and Ramosha Israelis writing in uh, Krakow and Poland um, begin to write encyclopedic works of Jewish law, both actually as commentaries on the tour uh, Rabbi Yosef Karo writes a book known as the Beit Yosef, and uh, Ramosha Israelis writes a sefer called the Darke Moshe. Um, Rabbi Moshe Israelis, as he's about to complete the book, finds out that Rabbi Yosef Karo uh, has been in the middle of, uh, of writing a similar work uh, to him and decides that instead of publishing a similar encyclopedic commentary of Jewish law, what he's going to do is write an abbreviated version that will merely add the points upon which he disagrees with Wilson Cairo. It'll add points, it'll argue, it'll incorporate, as we'll see, Ashkenazi traditions. Um, but fundamentally, the survey component of the Beit Yosef, the Ramosh um, Yisrael, decides he doesn't have to, uh, he doesn't have to um, reproduce. And then when Rabbi Yosef Karo writes his executive summary called Shulchan Aruch, this code, which is meant not for the rabbinic experts, but rather for the laity as a basic summary of Jewish law, um, the Ramah does the same thing and he writes his glosses known as the Hagot, the Hagot or the Mapa, the tablecloth as it were, which goes on top of the Shulchan Aruch because Shulchan Aruch literally means the set table and therefore the Ramah who decides to only add his additions is the mapa, is the tablecloth, the tablecloth that goes on top of it. Uh, in the ensuing years, in a century or two, following the publishing of Shulchan Aruch, so many commentaries are written on um, on Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah. Um, and when people say that we paskin, as it were, we rule like the Shulchan Aruch, they don't usually mean the text only of Rabbi Yosef Karo. They mean Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah, plus the major commentaries that surround the Shulchan Aruch. that are written in the 17th and 18th centuries. Svarim uh, like the Sefer Mi'irat Enayim by Rabbi Yeshua Falk, um, the Sefer Siftei Kohen, the, Shema, the Shach, written by Rav Shaftel Cohen Rappaport, and then written in the late 19th and 20th century, many people think more of uh, the Mishnah Brura, written by Rav Israel Meir Cohen, also known as the Chafetz Chaim. Um, and this is what we mean by, by uh, Shulchan Aruch. Um, so, first question we have to ask is, why is it that suddenly in the 16th century, um, one second, I see I have a question here, so let me just take the question. Oh, no, that's just the sources. Okay, so why is it that in the 16th century, um, codes suddenly start being published? Because this is a new mode. Yes, the Rambam had a code, and yes, the Tour had a code. So the Rambam writes a code in the 12th century, and the Tour in the, in the 13th century. Um, and there were some summary works um, in the in the 15th century, but this notion of an all-encompassing code, which wrote about every aspect of practical law, um, was not unprecedented. Again, the Rambam does have an all-encompassing code, but was definitely not um, extremely popular, um, and definitely wasn't something that was found in the average person's uh, bookshelf. So why is it in the 16th century, um, Rabbi Yosef Cairo and Ramosha Israelis um, are writing codes, and it sweeps the Jewish world within the course of just a few years, such that in within the next century, commentaries are being written, halakhic commentaries are no longer just be being written on the Gemara, 
but they're being written on the page of Shulchan Aruch. Um, and this becomes the the new frame of, of reference for much of halachic writing. So there seem to be um, a few reasons. One is, as we already saw with the writing down of the Mishnah and then the Gemara, there is this idea, and this is what Professor Chorsky um, hinted at a little bit in the piece that we just glanced at, um, when the Jewish world goes through um, a turbulent period, so there's a threat that people will lose their mastery of Torah. The best way to make sure that people maintain their mastery of Torah is to organize it and codify it. So, Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, writing in the turbulent years following the destruction of the Ben Amikdash, takes what is an a disorganized oral law and tries to organize it and then write it down. The, the turbulence of the, of the next few hundred years eventually lead to the writing down of the Talmud. And the hint that we get from Yosef Cairo's biography, and we'll see that he says this explicitly, is that the 15th century is the years, right, represents the years following a particularly turbulent period in Jewish history, specifically the tragic events of 1492 um, and the expulsion from Spain and then the later expulsions from Portugal. Um, so in the late 15th century, there are all these expulsions. So Jews are wandering around the world. Established communities are now reestablishing themselves or at least trying to. Uh, so there's a bit of chaos in the Jewish world. Um, and that means that there is an impulse that we need to somehow organize the information that we have, the Torah that we have, so that we will be able to carry it forward. So that's the first uh, reason that it seems to be that in the 15th century, in the 16th century, uh, this movement towards codes explodes. Um, there are, however, two other very important factors um, which either motivated the writing of codes, but more likely is important not just in the story of why it was written, but why it became so popular. Uh, and that is the printing press, right? The 16th century is also when printing becomes um, a thing, and that makes it much easier for something not just to be written, but to suddenly be publicized and be disseminated across the world, in this case, the Jewish world. And that also seems to be very important to this age of codes and the acceptance of Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah and the commentaries as this new way of writing about halacha. Um, the third factor that's identified by Joseph Davis in his article here in number two, the reception of the Shulchan Aruch and the formation of Ashkenazic Jewish identity, is that in the 16th century, Jews weren't the only people who were moving towards codes. This seems to have been the way the world worked. Um, and therefore, Jews were simply following a pattern that was um, that was common throughout the world. So he writes, throughout Europe, in France, the Low Countries, Spain, England, Germany, Poland, and the Ottoman Empire, the 16th century was an age of legal codification. In England, Richard Morrison wrote to King Henry VIII in the 1530s, proposing that the common laws of, of this, your realm, that now be unwritten might be written, that now be dispersed and uncertain might be gathered together and made certain. A few years earlier, the Polish parliament decreed that all the customs, laws, and ancient statutes should be gathered from every province that we may begin the reformation of the entire constitution. Um, so you see that Shulchan Aruch is being published in the same century in which um, codification is the, uh, it's just what's happening. That's what's happening to law around the world. So these three factors, the attempt to organize the Torah as the world is in chaos, the Jewish world specifically is in chaos, two, um, the ability of the printing press to spread the books that are written, and three, the fact that the world is moving towards codification, all of that seemed to contribute to the massive su success 
of Sulchan Aruch writing in the 16th century. Okay, so now that is a little bit about mo motivation. Um, we'll see this in the Beit Yosef in just a second. But when we're looking at the Beit Yosef, not only will we see motivation, but as we go through, we will also move to the next question, which is, okay, what is the methodology used to create these codes? And what does this tell us about the history of Psak? So here in source three, we have Rabbi Yosef Kara's introduction to his encyclopedic work, the Beit Yosef. So again, just to remind ourselves, he writes two, he writes many works, but we'll focus here on two. He writes an encyclopedic work meant for rabbis um, as a commentary on the Arbaturim called the Beit Yosef, in which he collects basically the entire history of Psak for the rabbinic authority to analyze and have access to. And then he writes a summary called Shulchan Aruch for the average person to read through. Um, for those of you who have ever looked at Shulchan Aruch, you know it's quite long. Um, but Rabbi Yosef Kairo himself actually thought that the average person, the average uh, member of the lady, should review Shulchan Aruch on a monthly basis. So he really did imagine that it was a, uh, a how-to guide um, that was easily accessible. It is easily accessible, but not maybe as accessible as he thought it was. Um, but those are the two works that we're talking about. So if you look here in his introduction, we don't read it all inside, but I'll highlight some key, key lines here. Um, so he tells you why did he write this book? Why did he embark on this process of, um, of organization? Um, and the like. Um, so the first thing he highlights um, is, as we noted, times were turbulent. And therefore, it was time to organize. And that's where it's here. or as the days have lengthened. We have been emptied from one vessel to the other, and we've walked in exile. The We have all these terrible things that have happened to us, one after the other. Which has led to the loss of the curse of Yeshayahu, which is that the wise ones will lose their wisdom. And he says, and the, the strength of Torah has gone, and those who study it, and the Torah is no longer just two. Torahs, which is the fear that is described in the Talmud. There are, the Torah has turned into, a, has splintered into an endless number of Torahs. So the first thing is that there's been so much chaos um, in the Jewish world that that has led to chaos in the process of Psak. So just like we saw two and three weeks ago, that Rebbe Danasi in the aftermath of the destruction of the Ben-Amigdash, decided that we needed to codify the Mishnah, Joseph Kano, writing the 16th century, says it's time to reorganize um, our sources because all the things that have happened to the Jewish people have made it that the material of halacha is overwhelming and is disorganized, and we just need help. And he says, look, why am I doing this now? He said, maybe you'll tell me that ideally every law should just be examined directly from the Talmud. He says, good luck. That's very hard. I mean, be realistic, people. Said, so even if you knew where it was in the Talmud and it would take a long time to take that and go through the commentaries and figure out what to do. But first, you've got to find it in the Talmud, which is also not easy because it's not organized. Right? It's not organized in that way. It's not organized in an easily accessible way. So good luck. So then he says, well, maybe there are books out there that you can rely on. Why am I writing a new type of book? There are certain summary works that existed. He says, It seems short, but it's not. That's going to be hard. 
They are too short, right? They are too short, too concise. They just don't get the law right. They don't, or they're not clear enough. They're not extensive enough. You're going to mess up because it, they are incomplete. And therefore, because of all this, he writes, I, the weak, the poor one, my, right, the, the required um, humility statements at the beginning of every rabbinic sefer, not all, admittedly. He has other works where he's not like this. In this work, he describes himself, Ani Hadal, me, the poor Yosef. Who am I? But what else am I supposed to do? In one of his, in his mystical work, Magid Sharim, which is, um, as he writes, the record of his uh, study sessions with his private angel. Don't ask me what that means. I have literally no idea. Uh, but there, he writes about himself. Um, that he is Yosef, he said he quotes the angel as saying that he is Yosef Hamachnekaro. Uh, sorry, he is Pasakna Rabba Daradi Israel. I might be misquoting it slightly. The greatest halachic authority of Israel, Mechabarna Rabba Daradi Israel, the greatest author in Israel, Yosef Hamachnekaro, Yosef Karo. And quoting from the Megillah that we read this week, who God himself loves him. Quoting from, uh, right, so in other words, he's not quite as uh, humble, but in this week, where he is. So he says, because of all this, I decided I don't have any choice, so what am I going to do? So I decided I am going to collect all practical law from the Talmud with all later authorities, Ishlonadar, bar none. I will create a collection, encyclopedia, of every single halachic authority that I know of on every practical law that is relevant in modern day. Everything. That's it. That is my small task that I took on myself. I have a question. No, still, okay. Um, so he explains, right, as we said, because of the turbulence in the Jewish world and the difficulty of studying, finding things in the Talmud and the added problems that were created because it's hard enough under good circumstances, but the Jews are under bad circumstances, he takes on to write encyclopedia and begin to organize the law. And he tells you quickly who he includes in it. I won't read them all, but you can see here, this whole paragraph is just names. He puts, I include the Talmud, Rashi, Tosot, Ran, Rif, Rosh, Mordechai, Rambam, Hagot, Magimishna, Rebbe, Rucham, Sefer, Atrum, Shibalei, Leket, Rokeach, Shari, Dura, Tajbeitz, Itur, Nemuka, Yosef, Smag, Smak, Orchub, Chaim, Torah, Rabbi, Agor, Ashri, Manhig, Agor, Sefer, Balei, Nevesh, Laraivet. It doesn't matter if you know all these or you don't know all them. The point is, he's taken on quite a um, daring task. And he's just showing how hard things are. And then at the end, he says, which is important for a topic for another time, Sometimes he includes the Kabbalistic material of the Zohar. Okay, so now what? What's he going to do with all that information? I mean, that's a lot of information. So what do you do? So what he said is, here's his methodology. Said my goal here is to issue alachi grueling, and here we begin to get the next philosophical value that drove him. I had to make a decision because I want there to be unified law. Right, one of the problems of the galut is that there is not unified law, and therefore the whole goal is to get a unified law. So how is he going to get a unified law? So he says, first of all, I don't think that I am greater than the Rishonim, so I don't think that I can rule directly from the Gemara. Because even if I think that they're wrong, they were smarter than me, so they probably understood my question, they had an answer, even if I don't know what it is. He says, Who would have the audacity to say that they have new arguments that have never been seen? So he says, I'm not going to rule straight from the Talmud. I'm not going to try to figure out who's right. What am I going to do? 
לכן הסכמתי בדעתי כי לחיות שלושת עמודי הוראה אשר הבית בית ישראל נשען עליהם בהוראתיהם, I'm going to pick the three major authorities that Jews already rely on. The Rambam, Maimonides, the Rif, Rabbi Yitzchak Al-Fasi, writing in the 10th century in Morocco, Harash, and Rabbeinu Asher, writing in the 13th century, who begins at the Balatosvot in, um, in Germany and then moves to Spain. I'm going to take them, and I'm going to rule based on simple majority, best of three. Um, and if... Sir Yosef Karo is outlined, right? He said, look, things have been bad. The Torah is endless as it is, and things, and, and things have gotten crazy. So I'm going to take the small task of organizing everything that ever existed, basically. But that's not how I'm going to rule. I'm going to rule based on simple majority. I'm going to take the three main halachic authorities that I know of, as far as I'm concerned, the most important authorities, the, the ones that Jews have accepted, the Rambam, um, the Rif, and the Rush. Um, and I'm going to take the best of three. That's his methodology of Tzach. That's his methodology of halachic ruling. Um, and if he says, if one of them doesn't weigh in, so then I'll rely on other people. But fundamentally, that's my methodology. Now, at first glance, if we step out for a moment from the historical to the methodological, um, what you see is that Rabbi Yosef Karo believes that, at least until this point, that the ideal vision for halacha is a single view, a single view, right? A unified Jewish practice. And he says that's the whole point. Because of these turbulations, the turbulent times, not only have we forgotten Torah, but simply we have different practices, and that's a problem. And therefore, part of what motivates him is a belief that there should be a single halachic sak. Now, this is problematic because if there's supposed to be one sak, it's not nice to stack the deck in favor of, you know, your chosen tradition, which is essentially what he does, because the Rambam considered himself essentially the spiritual student, not the direct student, but the spiritual student of the Rif. And in 90% of cases, um, he rules like the Rif, because his father, Maimon, was a student of the Rimegas, or of Yosef Ibn Megas, however you want to pronounce it, who was, in, who was a student of the Rif, of Rabbi Yitzchak Fasi, and therefore, by saying you're going to pick the best of three between the Rif, Rambam, and Rush, what you're really saying is that there should be one sock for everyone, and that sock should be essentially the Sephardi tradition. So at first glance, you would say that Rabbi Yosef Karo, part of this codification, is an attempt to unify sock behind Sephardi um, halachic rules. Uh, however, he does backtrack slightly, um, and how you work this out with his view is not clear, right? Because he does, for the rest of his introduction, this seems to be his methodology. But in his last two lines, he says, But if there are certain places that treat something as forbidden, even though I rule differently, they should follow their halachic ruling and their customs because they've already ruled that it should be forbidden and therefore they can't be permitted. So even though his stated goal is to unify the Jewish people at this stage in the Galut, in this stage of the exile behind one halachic position, he does acknowledge the fact that there is still room. It's not going to be totally uniform because where there is deep-seated customs, he acknowledges that people should follow the views that they've already been following. So that's Rabbi Yosef Karo's vision in, uh, in writing the Shulchan Aruch. So why does Rabbi Moshe Isserlis jump in um, and write his comments? So he has several critiques of Rabbi Yosef Karo. Fundamentally, he agrees that there's a need to codify halacha, to organize things. 
Um, but he has a few critiques of the methodology chosen by Rabbi Yosef Karo. Um, his main critique is what he is. I put here in bold. Hashlishit v'hu aikar. What's my main problem? I know that the big Yosef, what did he do? Methodologically speaking, he thinks that the way to create Psaq is to, to weigh the earlier authorities. And the way he did that specifically was And he tries to get either two or three out of three. Admittedly, the wonderful geniuses. Whenever two agree, then he rules like that. Um, and if they didn't weigh in, so then he rules like others. Um, but he says, I don't like this because if you're trying to make a unified sock for the whole world, you can't ignore an entire tradition. Namely, what he essentially used himself as the heir of the Ashkenazi tradition. Because what about all of us? What about all the people that we have followed? Birosham, Maharik, Maharai, What about all these books? And not just that, and also he may have paid lift service to custom, but by ignoring the books that are part of our canon, our collections of customs, you have ignored the Ashkenazi world. And Ashkenazi sock, as much as it cares about authority, cares much more about custom. And therefore, these collections of customs that we have, that in the end of the day is often the bottom line for Ashkenazi Psach. We don't challenge them. We don't question them. I don't want to argue on them either. And therefore, and that's why I don't just add sources. I write practice. And say, this is the minha, this is the custom. The cold of our katafti me, and I tell you who said it, etc. So the Ramah, Ramosh Israelis, comes in and he says, Look, I more or less agree that there's a need for codes nowadays, but I disagree with the methodology. I don't think that you only care about sources. And you weigh out sources, you have to care about the lived practice of the Jewish people. And if you want to codify what it is that Jews are supposed to do, you can't just look at books. Ashkenazim, we care about custom. And therefore, when I tried to figure out what you should do, I wrote down, this is what we do. And therefore, it is binding. So on the one hand, Ramosha Israelis agrees with the Beit Yosef in a need for organizing Tzach. But while the Beit Yosef thinks that under most circumstances, halacha should be ruled based on books and the majority, and if there's a strong custom, then that might override it, the Ramah says no. In Ashkenaz, at least, custom was the determining factor. And therefore, especially when Ashkenazi custom diverged from what the Beit Yosef wrote, he added his comments to tell Ashkenazim, this is what you could do. This is what you should do against what the Beit Yosef wrote. So in a certain sense, Rabbi Yosef Karo and Ramosha Israelis have two competing visions. One is based on a balance of authority. The other is based on custom, even though each has a little bit of the other. But the Beit Yosef is more based on authority with a little bit of room for custom. And Ramosha Israelis says a lot of custom, but obviously taking into account sources. But both of them agreed here in the 16th century that the right move for halacha was to organize itself around codes. There was, however, another vision. And this was from Ramosha Israelis' cousin, Rishlomo Luria, 
writing in the Sefer Yamsel Shlomo, also in the 16th century in Poland, who attacks not just the methodology of Ramosha Israelis and Rabbi Yosef Karo, but the entire enterprise. And he says, look, I'll, I'll say it outside. But here he says, look, I don't like codes. Not just Rabbi Yosef Karo's code. Not just Ramosha Israelis' comments. I don't like codes. I don't like the Rambams either. You know, we don't like taking on the Rambam. Rishon Luria was happy with it. He said, I don't like the Rambam either. I mean, I like him, but I don't like the idea of codes, period. That's not how halacha works. Halacha is messy. And the way to rule on halacha is to go back to the Talmud, understand the Talmud, trace the authorities as hard as it is. I know the Rabbi Yosef Karo said it's hard. It is hard, but too bad. That's how halacha works. We don't need a unified psaq. What we need is a psaq in which each person who is qualified to analyze the sources looks at the Talmud and tries to understand what the law should be. And his superhero is not the Rambam, but it is Tosvot. Because the Bali Tosvot, they don't write codes. I mean, some of them do, but most of them don't. What they write is comments on the side of the Talmud that help you organize not just the localized comments of the Talmud, but the Talmud as a unit, right? They try to revolve contradictions in order to make it that, as he describes it, the Talmud is one big ball, right? It's no longer a set of individual texts, but, it is an, but it's a unified text, and law emerges from that. So here in the 16th century, you have one view, which is we need to start organizing, either based on authorities, which is Rabbi Yosef Kara with a little bit of custom. Custom, but respect to the authorities, Ramosha Israelis. And that, but both of them agree that codification is valuable. And then you have Rishon Maluria who comes in and says this entire enterprise is flawed. That's not how PSOC works. What you're supposed to do is take each thing and figure out what you think is true, and that's how you rule halachic. So this is what happens in the 16th century. Who wins? So in a certain sense, codification won, at least for a while. Um, but in a certain sense, it lost. It won in the sense that a lot more people read Shulchan Aruch and Ramah than they read the Yom Shashlam. Because it's easier to use, because it's organized, etc. But ironically, um, in a certain sense, the reason Shulchan Aruch, won, Shulchan Aruch won is because Rabbi Yosef Karo's vision of a unified singular psaq lost. Right? It became accepted because Ramosha Israelis added his comments, which meant that even on the page of Shulchan Aruch itself, it doesn't have one ruling, it has multiple rulings. And then in the hundred and 200 years that followed, as the commentaries wrote around Shulchan Aruch, Shulchan Aruch, broadly speaking, became more accepted, but the actual rulings of Yosef Karo and Ramosha Israelis became less binding because there were now more commentaries that were considered in play, right? Meaning everybody on the page of Shulchan Aruch is, you know, part of Shulchan Aruch, broadly speaking. So in a certain sense, codification won, but codification won because this was a code unlike the world had ever seen. It wasn't a code that gave you one law. It was more of an organizational principle that collected different traditions of halachic ruling in one place. Um, but that's basically how the situation stood for a few hundred years until, and we'll talk about this more next week and the week after that, until more like the 18th century with the, um, the, um, the Shiva movement and the Vilna Gaon, where the, uh, the value of turning to the text itself became much more uh, important. Um, and Psaac began to, to rewrite itself a little bit there, but that we will uh, we'll talk about a little bit um, in, in coming weeks. But this is the situation essentially in the, the 16th century. Okay, but now 
we got to ask the question. For whom are these written? Meaning, Shulchan Aruch says, on the one hand, I'm writing a code. I want a single psaq. But at the end, he says, unless you have a long-standing custom, then you can rule differently. So you have to ask, um, okay, so who exactly did he think he was writing for? Right? Who did he think he was writing for? If he said, there should be one psaq unless you have a different custom, meaning how unified did he want the world to be? So he addresses this question in one of his collection of Chuvot, of responsive literature here in number six, in the Afkat Rochel, um, where he was essentially asked this question. Um, and he was asked, someone turned to him and he said, look, I was asked this question about certain Kostros question. Where there are some people unsure about the law. In Ashkenaz, they used to forbid this. I won't get into the details. So why is Rabbi Yosef Karo being asked the question? So as I mentioned, part of what drove codification was the turbulence of the 16th century following the expulsions uh, in Spain and Portugal. But broadly speaking, the Jewish world was moving. This is a problem because traditionally, halacha is very geographically uh, based because people had their customs from the cities that they lived in for generations. But if the world is shaken up, now you got to figure out, do I keep my old customs or my new customs? So Rabbi Yosef Karo was tested. What did he really think Shulchar was? By being asked, what happens when a group of Ashkenazim move to a quote-unquote Sparty land? What do they do? Do they follow their parents? Do they keep their, quote, their ethnic identity, let's say, for halachic purposes? Or... Do they have to accept the, the halachic rulings of the place they have moved into? Because you need a unified ruling. What do you do? So he says, I'll just get the cut to the chase. <clears throat> it is clear when you leave a place where they're stringent and you come to a place where they're lenient, you follow the new rule. <inaudible> so in our case, <inaudible> if Ashkenazim move into this place, into this kingdom, <inaudible> you've come to a new place, you follow the local rules. That's it. And maybe you'll tell me, maybe you think that's only when an individual comes and moves into a new city. So now he assimilates into the majority Jewish culture. Maybe you'll say that if an entire ethnic community picks up from France and moves to Spain, they can maintain their identity and have two separate subcultures? Uh, no. <laughs> that is wrong. Just like an individual assimilates into the majority culture, so too does a community. And therefore, Yosef Karo you begin to understand why he thinks that codification is a good idea. Because he thinks that communities are defined geographically and one it doesn't matter how many ethnic identities end up in one place, whatever the practice is in that place, you create a unified psaq. And that's it, a unified halachic ruling. 
And then you sort of understand why he likes code so much. He's willing to acknowledge that maybe off in some place where they have a different custom, they can keep it. But he thinks fundamentally there should be a unified sock as much as possible. And the notion that while the world is being shaken up, we should give in to that and allow for halachic subgroups to exist in a community, he says, under no circumstances will I accept that. And you understand why he cares, therefore, about codification, because his view for halachic rulings is ideally uniformity. And therefore, even when he's pushed and he says, isn't the world shaken up and there are displaced communities, shouldn't you respect that? His answer is no. We need unity. And therefore, I'm going to write a code. Right? These work together. This is the way he views the world. But there's another vision that exists at this time. And that is, and this will become very clear in the next two weeks, a view that says, no, as the world is shaken up, geography starts to lose its hold over halacha, and there is legitimacy to ethnic communities emerging and having individualized sak. And this you see in the Mogan Avram of Avram Gumbina writing in the 17th century, but quoting the Arizal, the Kabbalist in the 15th, 16th century. And he writes, and this is a well-known passage, he writes, Arizal The Arizal used to only say the, um, the poems and liter the liturgical poems that are in the Sidur. But he wrote, But your customs in prayer don't change. Keep your custom. Because there are 12 paths in heaven, 12 gates in heaven, parallel to the 12 tribes. Now, what does he mean? Does he mean that different geographies keep their customs? Or does he think that different people keep the customs of the place from which they came? So the Arizal, it seems pretty clear, means the latter. Right? He's the beginning of someone who believes that multiple halachic communities can exist in a single place. How do we know this? We know this because his nickname while living in Israel, which is where Rabbi Yosef Karo is, which is a Sardi culture, his nickname was Rabbi Yitzchak HaAshkenazi. One of his nicknames was the Ashkenazi. Right? That's what he was known as. Uh, and it's clear that he's not just saying that different places are different customs. He's saying different people or different communities in each place can keep their custom. So you begin to, to have these vision, different visions during the era of codification, the age of codification, of whether the ideal is a single sock and each geography at least has a single community. Or do we start to recognize the existence of, uh, of ethnic, as it were, identities within the halachic world and give legitimacy to their positions? Nowhere was this most pronounced than in the fight over the Ramah. Because as we saw, the Ramah wrote the Ashkenazi position. Because clearly he thought that no one had hegemony over the entire halachic world. But who did he write his book for? So he writes it for Ashkenazim, but what did he mean by Ashkenazim? So this got a little bit complicated. So the, Ram, the Ramah himself writes that he's writing for the right Ashkenaz. Um, and then he says he's writing for the customs for the customs that spread out in his place. 
So it's clear that he's making a geographic claim, that he's ruling for his place. But how big is his place? Right? Is his place Poland? Or is his place Poland, Germany, France, Hungary, etc.? Right? Basically, anything that's not quote unquote Sparty is now Ashkenazi. And does he represent a belief in localized customs and localized halachic ruling? Or does he represent a shift to pan geographic um, halachic rulings that create meta communities? So, in a fascinating piece, which I gave you here in nine, Rav Chaim ben Bitzalel, writing in the 16th century, says that this was a fight between the printers, and the Ramah himself. And he says, if you look at the original Ramah, the Ramah wrote that he was poskening for Poland and Russia. But in the printers, the printers added and Ashkenaz and Germany. And he argues that it was the printers. The Ramah believed in localized custom and the But the printers, because they wanted to sell books, started pushing a vision of pan-Ashkenazi identity um, in order to make it that everyone would accept it. So what you have is this fascinating thing that, according to him, it's not just that the printing press is what enabled codification. It's what actually spurred the disputes over how do you define community for the first purposes of halachic ruling? Right? So you have Rabbi Yosef Karu who thinks ideally there should be one psaq for everybody. You have Rishlam Luria who said, no, 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 everyone should just interpret the Gemara as they see fit. And you have the Ramah who says you should stick to custom. But the question is what custom? Local custom, which might be what the Ramah himself said. Or does the shakeup in the world and the ability to have the printing press create international communication, does that force us to move towards a model where we think about community on macro levels? And therefore, we maybe not have, we don't have one unified PSAC, but we do have unified halachic communities across geographic lines. Right, so the printing press doesn't just enable codification, it forces different conceptualizations of what it means to be a community, and therefore the question of who you're writing for. One more model seems to emerge, which is in certain sense similar to what we saw in Rosh Hashanah, um, but is even more localized. Rabbi Yosef Mizrahi, writing slightly before Rabbi Yosef Karo, also acknowledges this notion that people are moving around and there are ethnic subcommunities living in quote unquote Sparty lands. And he says, he said, Ashkenazi here in Constantinople means someone who used to live in Ashkenaz and now moved to a Sephardi land, <coughs> but Davin's in the Ashkenazi stool. So you begin to see a, yet another model, right? You have Rishon Maluria, Paskin based on the Gemara. Don't go for codes. Always try to understand the law yourself. Rios of Cairo says, ideally, we should have one halachic ruling based on a balance of authority. The Ramah says, no, we should have customs which are respected, but is that localized to, to single countries or as the printers seem to have believed, do we move because of the ability of publication to unify the world? Do we move towards pan-geographic identities and rule based on that? And then you have this model that from, from, from the Arizal and maybe from Elazar Mizrahi, that no, you can have multiple halachic realities living in a single community. You can have different sub-communities. So while in a certain sense, the 16th century is a victory of codes, you see that at the same time, what it means to write a code and who it's binding of, that question is beginning to be asked. And the 
answer to the question of who are you writing for um, is just as important as is this text accepted? Because maybe it's accepted, but what does it mean it's accepted? Right? Who do you think you're writing for? What do you think community is? What is how what does it mean to write halakha? And that's really, I think, the important point to understand about the age of codes. Because in the next two weeks, what we're going to talk about is, well, what happens in the 500 years following that? Because if in the 16th century, they're already talking about people moving from one country to another, and therefore trying to figure out, do you view the Jewish world as one big community that ideally has one halachic rule? Or do you think in meta-communities? Or do you think in localized countries? Or do you think in identity communities within every locale and every shul has its own identity? As important as it was at the beginning of the Age of Codes, in the 500 years that followed, and especially in the 20th and 21st century, moving to America and Canada and Israel and England and things like that, the game completely changed. Um, and what we're going to have to do is figure out how did it change? And what does that tell us about what it means to be a community and what that means for halacha? And to note that it's not totally clear um, whether what drove this and the, the acceptance of certain authorities in certain communities, whether it's purely based on halachic methodology um, or not. Um, so to highlight this, if you look at the SMA writing in um, a little bit later than the Ramah, the Ramah, he says, okay, the Ramah clearly was successful and was accepted across country lines to the, even if some people protested it. But he tries to figure out um, where, where did they accept the Ramah? So he has this shocking comment and he says, he said, you know what it depends on? It depends what language you spoke. Arabic-speaking countries define themselves as Sephardi. And therefore, they follow the Shulchan Aruch. And Yiddish or whatever, Polish, Russian, those languages, the people who could converse, they accepted the Ramah. Now, that doesn't seem to be a halachic comment. But what the Smar, Yeshua Kwok, seems to indicate is that the question of who gets accepted isn't just a formal legal question. It has a lot to do with culture. Because as the world is shaken up, and it's unclear how you're supposed to formulate law, and how you're supposed to, to relate to community as communities change, so people fall back on culture to figure out who they are. Um, and this is seen in a fascinating way. Um, I gave you here a map, but there was a dissertation written um, about Rav Shlomo Kluger's Psaq by Chaim Gartner. Um, Rav Shlomo Kluger was an authority writing later on in the, in the 19th century, uh, 18th, 19th century, um, who became very influential in certain parts of Europe. And in this dissertation, they highlighted where did he become authoritative? So in the present case, Rishon Kluger's sphere of influence largely corresponds to the areas where Mideastern and Southeastern dialects of Yiddish were spoken, where the gefilte fish was sweet, not savory. It turns out that our guiding question, what goes into a rabbi's decision about who to turn to for answers to difficult questions, is answered in part by culture. Rabbis were more likely to entrust such questions to a greater rabbi within the same cultural sphere. That is in the case of Galicia, to a rabbi who made lakas from kartoflin, not bulbous. I don't know what the difference is, but um, what you begin to see is that this picture is complicated, not just by formal halachic argumentation, but by culture. Because as people think about how to redefine the world as it's shaken up, they don't just go to classic halacha, but they go to cultural points. And that helps shape um, the way they think about community and therefore the way they think about sock. Okay, I think we'll stop here. Um,
the points that I have here can be easily tied into next week. So the extent to which I need these sources, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll bring them into next week's discussion. Um, but what we're going to be doing, as I said, in the next two weeks is really continuing on, on this conversation, which is, okay, we see why codes became popular in the, 15th, in the 16th century, but we also see the complexities that arose there in terms of defining community and trying to figure out who you're writing for and how you're writing to them and who's going to accept you. And as I said, those questions are only going to be exacerbated in the generations uh, that follow. And what we're going to do over the next two weeks is trace that from the 16th century, slowly but surely, to the 21st century, and try to define our current moment of sock and understand how these forces have defined the way we think about community and the way that affects the way we think about halachic ruling um, and the like. So that's what we will do in the next two weeks. Uh, thank you. That that works great. So thank you, Rabbi Ziering. <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward, uh, those who are leaving us now, I'm looking forward to uh, seeing you next week. Uh, and thank you. Many, many thanks to everyone who joined us today, not only on Zoom, but also on Drisha Live and on Facebook. Um, we continue our spring program tomorrow, uh, Tuesday at 1 p.m. with the second class in a series on the world of doubt between human and divine, between law and reality with Rabbi Nithi Shimoni. So I hope to see you there. In addition, we always have many more classes happening. So you can find out more information as well as the registration links on our website at www.drisha.org slash classes. Or you can watch live at www.drisha.org slash live.